You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That song, 16 Tons, was a smash hit in 1955, selling half a million copies in a month. But why did a song with such depressing lyrics resonate with people? And what do those lyrics mean? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tennessee Ernie Ford was singing about a company town. A company town was a community built by a business owner, typically in the steel, lumber, or coal industry, to house their employees. It was also usually an exercise in microcosmic fascism, where employees were told how they could live. At their height, 3% of the U.S. population, many of them immigrants, lived in one of the 2,500 company towns in the country. Workers lived in company-owned housing, the cost of which was taken from their wages. Many companies also paid their workers in scrip, basically funny money that could only be redeemed at company-owned stores. The unions that fought to eventually eradicate this system saw it as a form of bondage, designed to keep workers trapped in poverty without enough money in their pockets to even think about starting over somewhere else. The West Virginia Historical Society, whose sparsely populated state saw half a dozen company towns, wrote, Pricing in the company stores was often higher than in surrounding non-company establishments. It's true that in the mining families, coal operators had captive purchasers for their goods. When the miners weighed the price of shipping his purchases from a mail-order catalog or a local merchant against the price of what could be purchased at the company store, Often, the store ended up being the better bargain. For the companies, Script provided an easy way to pay the miners without the necessity of keeping large amounts of cash available. Miners drew Script advances for many purposes. Should he run short and need food before the next payday, Script credit was available. If a miner was sick or injured, companies would advance Script pending receipt of his workers' comp checks. For the operators, this was a no-lose situation. Companies had the ability to virtually garnish a worker's wage to collect on a debt. It would appear that the availability of such easy credit, most miners would in fact owe their souls to the company store. To give us an example of one of the nation's most famous and infamous company towns are the hosts of one of my Drop Everything to Listen to It podcasts, Cutting Class, which you can follow on your podcast player or at cuttingclasspodcast.com. Thank you, Moxie, for introducing us. We are Cutting Class Podcast. We're Jess and Joe, and we do history from a teacher's perspective, but also try to look at the lighter, more fun side of history, right? And in fact, today, we're going to get super fun with George Pullman and the Pullman Town. Yay! Woo! 
Right, now, and that doesn't sound very exciting, but it's probably one of the most well-known examples of a company town in American history. And, and Joe's going to tell us a little bit about why here today. What makes this town so special, and why do we seem to always see it in a textbook? Well, let's let's get to like like Pullman and why why Pullman was a well known figure, and then we can sort of get to why the the town is sort of a well known thing. Uh, George Pullman is going to make his name in the train car business. He was working with these things called sleeper cars, which are you know the passenger cars that people would travel in. And what Pullman did to really make his name and to make his fortune was he took these dank, dirty, grimy, old school sleeper cars and made them luxurious and comfortable and sexy and, more importantly, fairly expensive to travel on. Yeah, it was the first class of the train. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to travel in style, if you wanted to see and be seen on the train, you wanted to be traveling in a Pullman car. And that's exactly uh, what he did, is he made those cars available. He would lease these cars to the major railroad companies, so uh, he would never quite sell them. So, in fact, you know, he's constantly making some money off of the leasing of the cars. But it was in the railroad owner's best interest to continue leasing those cars because they noticed high-class Americans with lots of dollars to spend liked to travel on the Pullman Sleeper. So that's where, you know, Pullman makes his name and his fortune, and he really kind of hits his high point in the 1870s into the 1880s. Now, one of Pullman's sort of crowning achievements, and this is what breaks him out of just being sort sort of a titan of American industry into now one of these dudes that's chasing the sort of capitalist utopian dream, is the Pullman Company town that he completes construction on in 1884. It's right near Chicago, Illinois, and it's this massive, like, 4,000-acre... Think of it as, like, a compound where Pullman workers could live and work. It's like kind of a college campus, if you want to think of it that way, for your workspace. Uh, You work all day, and then you come home to your fancy house. And these houses are nice for the day, right? You've got running water. You've got maybe a little yard for yourself. You've got some, you know, room that's yours. You're not crammed into, I don't know, an entire slum with a bunch of other immigrant families. And you don't have any room. And the idea behind the whole thing was you can work, play, and live all in the same town. But things, of course, aren't the utopia that they always seem. They actually turn out to be kind of dark and scary what what goes wrong in this perfect community so it's like uh it's like an episode of the twilight zone where it's like you know the the neighborhood always looks perfect but isn't there something rotten on maple street or something like yeah, that? yeah. and the thing that's going on is sure you may have uh you know a basement and separate bathrooms and water faucets that you wouldn't probably have in other big cities but you also couldn't just go out and buy some cigarettes and booze like you would in any other town because Pullman had fairly strict rules against that type of vice and behavior. And in fact, if you wanted that kind of vice, you would just go live in Chicago itself. Exactly. You don't come here to trash my town. And this is where you get the George Pullman Thought Police, right? He would <laughs> not only... <laughs> <laughs> New band name. It's, it's not only like you can't buy booze and alcohol, but you also can't read certain books and certain things weren't sold in the stores and they get to the micromanaging part that seems to ruin almost every utopia. Right. Pullman had final say over the literature that would be put in the libraries. He had final say over performances that would happen in the local theater. And that was kind of the price you paid for living in Pullman. So sure, they'll collect your garbage every day and sure, you're going to have running water, but at the same time, you are kind of turning over a little bit of that freedom that you have in your free time to George Pullman. Not only that, but didn't they suspend the ability to like have public meetings and speak your mind and basically take a lot of your 
basic you know, American rights and put them on hiatus because you're living within this town, so you abide by all of our rules. Well, hey, let's think about this. Pullman is offering a sweet deal. What is it that you have to complain about or meet about or speak about publicly anyway, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Maybe that was the thought process, but again, down a very, very slippery road there. And uh, so that's uh, just a little tease, a little inkling of the Pullman Company town And uh, there's a lot more interesting stuff about this that you can check out, of course, on the internet and on different videos and stuff. Or you can always check out Cutting Class Podcast and learn a little bit more about it, including a very famous railroad strike that happens with the epicenter at the Pullman Company town. Thanks, guys. The town of Pullman featured more than a thousand homes, public buildings, and parks. Residences had yards, indoor plumbing, gas, and daily trash removal rare amenities for industrial workers of the era. Pullman didn't build his workers good houses to be kind to them, though. He thought the working class were barely better than animals, and if he could surround them with good things, they would become more civilized. The houses couldn't be purchased, only rented. Managers lived in single-family homes, white workers of Pullman lived in row houses, And despite the Pullman Company being one of the country's largest employers of black Americans as sleeping car porters, no blacks were allowed to live in Pullman. Some white workers were allowed to live outside the city limits, but it was at the risk of their job security. The city had a library, with books approved by George Pullman. A library card cost the equivalent of $100, so few people used it. It was the same with The Arcade, an impressive shopping center with a 1,000-seat theater, barbershop, doctor's offices, a post office, and bank, along with numerous overpriced shops and restaurants. A banner across the promenade boasted the lowest prices in Chicago. This was, of course, bullshit. Pullman also forbade alcohol in his town, except at the Hotel Florence, named after his daughter, where industrialists and celebrities were entertained and the average worker was not allowed. Pullman would know if you were drinking in the privacy of your own rented home, though, because he had spies watching the employees. After the stock market crash of 1893, Pullman cut jobs and wages, but he didn't cut the rent or the various taxes his workers were forced to pay. Since these were automatically deducted from the workers' wages, people began receiving paychecks for literal pennies. One man worked as a mechanic for 10 hours a day, 12 days of a two-week period, and earned $9.07. His rent on the same two-week period was $9, leaving him with 7 cents, one hour's reduced wage with which to try to buy food in the overpriced stores. Needless to say, a system like that was unsustainable, but Pullman's greed was steadfast. Joining a union was illegal in Pullman, but 4,000 workers went on strike anyway in May of 1894, what's called a wildcat strike. Eugene Debs of the American Railway Union stepped in to lead them. The Pullman Company refused to recognize or bargain with Debs, so he called upon workers across the country to stage a boycott of Pullman railroad cars. Around the country, hundreds of thousands of working-class people wore white ribbons to show their support for the strike. Meanwhile, at Debs' command, railway switchmen across the nation refused to hitch or unhitch Pullman cars while at work, costing the company an enormous amount of money. 
Within weeks, a quarter million workers across the country were striking. Pullman hired thugs to bust striking workers' heads, but those who lived in the company town felt they had nothing else to lose. Contrary to what you might expect, the clergy of Chicago by and large denounced the strike. Reverend E. Christian Ogle of Pullman declared all strikes violated the Golden Rule and added, If a man thinks he can do better elsewhere, there is no law compelling him to stay here. There was one notable exception, a Reverend Carwindine, who served a congregation that was too poor to have its own church. In a fiery sermon in May of 1894, he didn't hold back on his opinion of George Pullman. When he reduced wages to the point of starvation, why did he not reduce the rents and the water tax? When he was reducing salaries, why did he not reduce his own salary and the salaries of the higher official, the town authorities, and the straw bosses? Why did Mr. Pullman, when a woman's union, which was not called a relief committee for fear of hurting Mr. Pullman's feelings, approached him, did he refuse to contribute a dollar and also sent a communication to the press denying there was destitution in Pullman? Why did he not establish an emergency hospital, which is so badly needed? Deb promised that if Pullman recognized the Union and negotiated with them, the strike would end. Instead, Pullman asked for, and actually got, government assistance to break up the strike. 6,000 state and federal troops, 3,100 police, and 5,000 deputy marshals. The troops used bayonets on the strikers, before moving on to live ammo. The unarmed strikers fought back, though. When trains carrying soldiers came to town, the strikers stopped them dead in their tracks and rocked the train cars back and forth until they overturned. More than a dozen people were killed in the clashes. Though sympathy strikes were called in other cities, the American Federation of Labor refused to call an official general strike, and the Pullman strike was quashed. The workers who had striked were fired, and those who remained were paid the same low wage and charged the same high rent. When the railway car magnate died in 1897, his coffin was buried under layers of concrete reinforced with steel so no one could dig up and desecrate his body. The following year, the Illinois Supreme Court ordered the Pullman Company to sell all of its non-industrial property, allowing workers to buy their homes. The neighborhood was annexed by Chicago, but went into decline over the years, and the factory closed in 1957. There have been plans made throughout the years to demolish Pullman, Illinois, but protests from residents have always stopped it from going forward. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. 
Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Company town life can lead to unrest even in places where life is supposed to be the most sweet. In 1900, Milton Snavely Hershey sold the successful caramel candy business that he'd founded in order to become a pioneer in the mass production of milk chocolate. He built a factory complex in the rural township of Derry, Pennsylvania, spelled D E R R Y like the town in it, to be close to local dairy farms, spelled the normal way, for the milk needed for his products. With the remote location of the factory, Hershey also built a town for his employees. Like Pullman, Hershey was trying to create a model town or a town intended to act as a shining example of civilized life. based on the CEO's personal beliefs of course workers could own or rent a home on Chocolate Avenue or Cocoa Avenue take the trolley to schools or clubs or to visit the amusement park or zoo unlike Pullman Hershey established a boarding school for orphaned boys and started public works projects to keep people employed during the great depression building a hotel a civic center and a sports arena many of the workers were former farmers and the standard of living offered in Hershey with indoor plumbing, central heat, lawn maintenance and other amenities was certainly alluring. That's not to say that things went as smooth as properly tempered chocolate. Despite Hershey's altruism, life in the sweetest place on earth had a bitter side. The Hershey company tried to police their employees' behavior when they were off the clock, and there were accusations of unfair hiring practices and disparate wages. These conditions made employees receptive to the efforts of organizers from the Congress of Industrial Organizations. In 1937, some Hershey chocolate factory workers organized the company's first labor union and went on strike. But not everyone backed the workers. Great resistance came from the thousands of dairy farmers in the surrounding areas who relied on selling their milk to the Hershey factory. They were losing 800,000 pounds of milk per day. enough to supply a city of a million people. The farmers tried to negotiate directly with the strikers, and the strikers agreed to operate the creamery so the milk could be processed, but no trucks were sent out to gather milk the next day. After 5 days, more than 3,000 Hershey supporters rallied to remove the strikers. Things started well, but insults from the strikers sitting in in the factory soon saw men charging in with billy clubs and hammers. dozens were injured. Although the strike was short-lived, it marred the community's idyllic image. Hershey the man died in 1945, but Hershey the town survived and chocolate is still made there today. You can actually smell it from the highway. Bonus fact: The Milton S. Hershey Medical Center is the site of Pennsylvania State University's College of Medicine.
A warm welcome and sincere thanks to our latest Patreon patron, Trisha, whose support helps to keep the podcast going, including buying a new microphone to replace the one I bought last week and have to return. That's the way it goes sometimes. A $5 membership, which is 17 cents a day, gets you a sticker, topic voting rights, and a bonus mini-episode. But at the $10 a month membership, you also get early access to the regular episodes and more bonus content in the form of the Patreon-exclusive podcast, Spot the Lie, which comes out today. Also, thanks to everyone who has boosted the signal on social media, including the Strange Animals podcast, Eric Parfait, Augie Peterson, Conspiracy Theoriology, Lie Hard with a Vengeance, Bad Medicine Comedy Troupe in DC, Richard Enriquez, Charles with a Hammer, and the WNBA, that being the Women's National Book Association. Could this have something to do with the super secret project? Remains to be seen. Because I was behind schedule making last week's episode, and I'm on or ahead of schedule making this week, there wasn't really a lot of time for people to get any new reviews in. But you can always leave a review on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice, Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and Twitter at brainonfactspod, or on the contact form of the bottom of yourbrainonfacts.com. The website is also the place to find the show notes with all of the sources for my research. In the 1920s, cars were a booming industry, and no one benefited more from that than Henry Ford, a man whose name was as synonymous with success through innovation as Steve Jobs is today, or as synonymous with success through shady behavior as Mark Zuckerberg. Ford revolutionized car manufacturing with the assembly line, but he was equally proud of the personal side of his business, paying his employees well and treating them better than other companies did. The Model T was the best-selling car by a wide margin, so much so that it's still the eighth best-selling car of all time, which meant that the Ford Motor Company needed a lot of rubber to make tires for all those cars. Rubber manufacturers in East Asia held a monopoly over rubber trees, which drove up the price of raw materials. Ford decided to cut out the middleman and start his own rubber plantation, the world's largest, in the middle of the Amazon forest, complete with workforce. The location was actually the rubber tree's natural habitat, but farming them couldn't be standardized. If you tried to maximize your yield by planting more trees in the same amount of land, their closeness made them susceptible to blight and parasites. The East Asian monopoly did begin to buckle when enterprising and sneaky botanists started planting rubber tree seeds smuggled out of Brazil in other tropical locations where the rubber tree's natural parasites didn't exist. The British began growing rubber in Sri Lanka, producing rubber that was superior to and therefore outsold Brazil's. The economy of the Amazon basin, which was largely based on rubber, was devastated. Enter a rich American wanting to buy land. Ford's company town got off to a bad start when he massively overpaid for the 5,600 square mile or 14,500 square kilometers of land around the Tapajos River, a tributary of the Amazon. Prudent fears of river flooding saw them choose a main building site at a higher elevation, but it was more inland, which meant that the cargo ships couldn't reach it except during the rainy season when the river was higher. 
Bad enough when you're moving equipment, worse when you're trying to bring in food. And then there was the malaria. The community, Fordlandia, would eventually have a power plant, hospital, library, golf course, and hotel, as well as small shops and restaurants once it got established. Workers were held to a mandatory, healthy lifestyle. This included attending poetry readings, square dances, English-only sing-alongs, and of course, there was no booze. Construction began in 1928 on the segregated community. Villa Americana, white clapboard houses with indoor plumbing for the American workers, while the native workers got other housing. What workers there were. Even with Ford's famously high wages, it was difficult to find people willing to clear the Amazon jungle. After going through several general managers in the first few years, by 1930 it seemed like Fordlandia might actually work until an argument between a brick mason and a supervisor in the workers' cafe, in which the skilled workers were separated from the laborers, spilled out into the streets and gathered a crowd. A full-scale riot erupted, with the laborers vandalizing the city, destroying generators, and overturning vehicles in the street. Fortlandia's managerial staff fled by ship until the violence died down about three days later. Even without the expense of riot damage to many buildings and pieces of equipment, Fortlandia was still producing very little for the millions that Ford was pouring into it. His plan had been to sell the lumber of the trees they were clearing as a revenue stream until the rubber trees could grow, but the wood was unsaleable. Many of the rubber trees that were planted died immediately, and many of the rest were hit by blight. Fordlandia's manager hired an expert botanist who made extravagant demands, then walked off the job without telling anyone. In 1933, Ford purchased a new plot of land downriver and called it Belterra. Belterra went about as well financially, producing 750 tons of rubber, where Ford had projected for 38,000 tons. Despite having outlived all realistic economic hope, Fortlandia and Belterra clung on for nearly a decade. As Ford's car manufacturing became increasingly involved in the Second World War effort, his holdings in Brazil housed American military personnel. By the time the war ended, Henry Ford was in poor health, and grandson Henry Ford II took over the company. One of his first acts was to cut underperforming assets, chiefly the Amazonian rubber plantations. Ford II sold the Tapajos Basin land back to Brazil for a fraction of what his grandfather had originally overpaid for it. Once news of the land sale reached Fortlandia, the American workers made a swift exit for home. The Brazilian workers were left without jobs, and the machinery was left to rust in the jungle heat. Ford Motor Company got out of the rubber industry in 1945 after losing over $20 million in the Amazon, equivalent to $285 million today. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. You can visit Fortlandia even now, and not just to ogle the ruins of overly ambitious industry. Though the population languished at around 100 people for several decades, it's grown to about 3,000 now. In addition to articles and documentaries on Fortlandia, Icelandic minimalist composer Johan Johansson released an entire album based on this company town 
which is easy to find on YouTube by searching for Fortlandia, as I discovered when I was trying to do my research the lazy way. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.